0: Welcome to the Resurrection People podcast with Preston Sharp, pastor of Sacrament Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and curator of the Art of Preaching. Each week, we look at three readings from the Bible drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. Find more at theartofpreaching.substack.com. Welcome back to the Resurrection People podcast. Today, we are looking at our epistle reading for the Feast of Christ the King or Christ the King Sunday. Our reading comes from Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. And here, Paul writes of an inheritance that Christians have received. Now, these days, an inheritance is usually money or something that can easily be turned into money. You might inherit a possession. My grandfather was a car guy. He liked to buy new cars a lot and collect them. So cars in my mom's family were really special things. When my mother turned 16, her father helped her to acquire a 1964 Mustang convertible, a car she inherited after her father died many years later. The Mustang was a meaningful possession because of its sentimental value. This is often how we think of inheritances today. It's usually money or it's something of sentimental value. But in the ancient world, inheritance most always meant land. And this was particularly true for the Jewish people. And they were a people of the promised land, a people of a land. When they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, the children of Israel held out hope for the land which they would one day possess. Part of the meaning of the Exodus story, this most foundational story to the history of Israel, was that God's people were set free from slavery to go and claim their inheritance. They walked through the desert, led by God's presence in fire and smoke, hungry and thirsty, and faced with all kinds of dangers, all with the guarantee that they would get to the land in the end. And they did. In fact, in Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of a son who squandered the inheritance he had received from his father, cashing in a portion of his father's land. He took what the father had given him and wasted it away. And yet the father welcomes him back. It is also the story of an older brother who sits around judging the younger brother for his squandering and for wasting the inheritance they had both been given. In telling this parable, Jesus is telling the story of God's people who had taken God's great gift and squandered it, turning to false gods, to selfish ambitions, and to violent revolutions. And yet in Jesus, something new is happening. The squanderers are now not only being welcomed, they're being thrown a party. This is the way of the kingdom of God. Those who don't live God's new kingdom, the squanderers, the usurpers, and the idolaters are welcomed home. Of course, there is always the temptation of the older brother. Some of the religious leaders of Jesus' day struggled with the fact that Jesus was welcoming the squanderers. The older brother desires to restrict God's grace. To say, no, she can't be part of the family of God. No, he's done too much wasting. He's gone too far off track. But grace is at the heart of the kingdom of God as revealed in Jesus. We are given this new inheritance not because we've earned it, but because of what he has done. Our calling is simply to now live by the rhythms of grace. Paul helps us to understand the death and resurrection of Jesus as a kind of New Exodus. We have been set free from sin and death, free from all the false things that used to define us. We are free from old identities and counterfeit messages because of what Christ has done. When we are in him, we have been set free to be who we are called to be. And this means we've been set free to anticipate our inheritance. So no matter what life looks like for us, struggle, pain, tragedy, ways that we have looked back at our old identities and tried to embrace them once again, no, he will faithfully bring us to that new inheritance. So what is that new inheritance? What is our promised land? What is our future hope? Well, one of the ways Christians have answered this is simply to say heaven. But when we think of heaven, many of us imagine a place of riches and jewels a nice mansion to live in by heavenly seas. But remember, for Paul's original hearers, inheritance would always mean land, real, physical land. For Paul, the inheritance is a new kingdom, the whole world renewed by a fresh act of God's power and love. God's desire is to flood the whole cosmos with his presence, with his grace, and to bring about a new world. This is the inheritance for which Jesus's people are longing. In the meantime, God does something remarkable. He gives us a deposit on that future inheritance. For the children of Israel, the deposit, the promise of future inheritance was God's presence in the wilderness, guiding them by smoke and fire. He gave them the law. Commandments of what it meant to live God's rule and reign in the world. These were both deposits which anticipated the promised land. As Christians, we are given the Holy Spirit. The law is written on our hearts. The inheritance is God's world renewed and restored. But in the meantime, God gives the church, the Holy Spirit, as a signpost of that future world. The Holy Spirit is like the down payment on the inheritance. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to live God's future rule and reign here and now. In verse 19 through 21, Paul intentionally speaks of God's power. He prays that the people would experience the greatness of his power, but also his power is how they will receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Verse 17, it's how they will know God. We know God, not through our own ability to reach God, but his power at work. Now, the city that this letter was written to or written in the midst of was a city of great power. Ephesus was a center of imperial power, of Roman authority. It was also a center of religious power, known for its diversity of religious thought. Paul elsewhere calls all of this the principalities and powers, meaning both the political and religious authorities of the day. Now, the early Christians had very little, if any, political power. They had very little to say about who would be the next emperor or even governor. There was no such thing as a Christian voting block. (laughs) This is why political theology is so tricky for Christians. It wasn't until the fourth century that Christians really had any political influence. In the first few centuries, they were ruled by emperors and governors. Some were benevolent. Some were malevolent. Now, that doesn't mean Christians today are not to be engaged in politics. We're not dualists. Politics are often concerned with how we care for marginalized people as well as care for creation. How we do that matters, and Christians ought to be engaged in that. In fact, many of the great legislative movements in history have been led by the concern of Christians. You might think about the abolition of the slave trade in Britain through the work of many people, including William Wilberforce, or the civil rights legislation in our country, advocated for by many in the church, particularly the black church traditions. The problem is when we turn to a particular political party as the final hope of the world. For all the soaring rhetoric and ideological camps, politics is messy, a messy, broken business trying to pragmatically carry on the running of government. For Paul, and for us, there is one power that is the greatest power in the universe. There is one power that is greater than politicians, emperors, false gods, and religious leaders. And that power was expressed in the greatest act of strength there ever was. When God raised Jesus from the dead. This is a power unlike any other. The power to raise from the dead is the greatest power the world has ever seen. When we become part of the family of God, that same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. So why would we ever put our hope in counterfeit and paled powers when we have the power of God living in us? We don't automatically recognize this power because it looks so different from the power of our world. Paul says that in order to recognize this power, it will take a fresh gift of wisdom. It will come from a process of opening ourselves up to God. Paul says to the church that even if they do not see it, He sees it in them through their faith and love. Verse 15. The power of the Holy Spirit is often unseen to the naked eye. Earthly power seems obvious. Domination, control, influence. In this world, you can be powerful and also be awful. (laughs) It's possible to rule over something in a way that's dominating, oppressive, and self-serving. And to not only get away with it, but to be seen as successful. In this world in which we live, power corrupts, and power and virtue do not often correspond. By contrast, the power of God shows itself as the power to make virtuous decisions, to develop character, to love our enemies, to become people of prayer. These are not things that usually make news stories, but they do change the world. Because of the resurrection and Christ's lordship, Verse 22 says that God has put everything under the feet of Christ. That means governmental structures, families, difficulties, everything. Our world is broken, and we do not often clearly see this lordship. But we have the deposit. We are a people who are to live the rule and reign of Jesus, even in the midst of a world that serves other lords. Thanks for listening to the Resurrection People podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review to help us get the word out. You can hear full sermons at sacramentchurch.com and find out more at theartofpreaching.substack.com.